Hey, great to see all of you here today. Uh, okay, because uh, the numbers are a bit low, because some of them have uh, gone to KL for Sweet Things Wedding, uh, it's really good that we have an intimate setting, because I think the topic today is really important, and I hope that uh, you will really learn a lot from it, because I think that uh, it's really key to our evangelism and our confidence in God's Word. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you this morning, truly we want to... Uh, come before you and ask that you may be working powerfully in us through the Holy Spirit, that we may understand more from your own word and from uh, the evidence of this world why we should have faith in the Scriptures and why it should shape our lives and why in so many ways we must always come back to your word whenever we need instruction, comfort or correction. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, um, what obstacles do people have to becoming Christian? Uh, what are the roadblocks? Or what are the things that stop people really seriously considering about Jesus? Well, I think for, for many Singaporeans, the fundamental roadblock really is the Bible, isn't it? It's what we have in our hands today. And many people will say about the Bible, and I'm sure you've heard it before, that you know the Bible has good things to say, but... You can't take it literally. Right, it's got many, many good things that's worthwhile to follow, but you can't trust everything in it. That is not entirely trustworthy. And there's a deep suspicion of the Bible that you know you can take a lot of it, but the miracles, uh, some of the sayings, perhaps even some of the, the events that took place, maybe they're not really true. Have you ever heard that before? Maybe you feel that yourself. Maybe you've expressed your own doubts in your own mind about whether as I'm reading the Bible, is that, is that really true? Can I really believe that part of the Bible? Now, I want to share with you that I, in fact, once thought like that. Before I became a Christian, before I accepted Christ in my life, that is the way I viewed the Bible. I used to think, okay, the Bible is really interesting because obviously I went to a, a Christian school, so we used to read the Bible very often. And I used to think, well, that's a very interesting story, but I don't think that uh, that's actually true. Right? I mean, there's parts of it that I'll believe, but there's parts of it which I think, well, they just made a mistake. Now, today I want to look at the Bible, and we're going to look at it in two parts, really, the New Testament and the Old Testament. And I'll be up front of you and say that, well, obviously I believe both of them to be God's Word and to be historical and true, but I, I want to share with you my journey as to sharing with you why I came to the conclusion that the New Testament and the Old Testament, the Bible as a whole, is reliable and it is trustworthy and it's true. Now, if you look at your handouts that uh, you have in front of you, you'll see that there are a few common objections to why you can't believe the whole of the Bible, why it is that the Bible is not totally true. Now, the first objection, obviously, is up there at the top of the outline, is that some people will say, well, the Bible is actually made up of legends, myths, and fables. Uh, okay, do you have that in front of you? Not, not, not the photocopied thing, but the outline. Like, you know the outline you get when you come in, right, in the middle section? The outline will say, you know, some people will say that you can't really trust the Bible because some of it anyway is legendary, is myths, is fables, right? And I think it's expressed like this. Uh, there's a very popular author called Karen Armstrong. If you go to Borders or Kinokunia, you can find many of her books. And she will say something like this, that the Bible contains the kernel, as in not Colonel Sanders or Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? But a kernel is there's a seed of truth about Jesus, but over time, right, uh, this kernel of truth has been added onto 
by you know layers and layers and layers of myths and legends. So yes, at one point in time there was a person called Jesus, and Jesus did various things, but that's all been exaggerated and blown out of proportion. And you can see up here on the slide, I've got lots of slides today. Actually, I've got more than three hours worth of material, but I won't, I won't keep you here for three hours. Okay, and uh, you'll see that this is a sort of a visual representation of what people think of the Bible, right? They'll say that yes. There was a person called Jesus, and yes, he was crucified. Yes, he did live on this earth for 33 years. But the Bible has sort of put on layer. See, these are layers, right? This is the paintbrush. They put on layers and layers and layers of myths and things about Jesus so that as we are here today, we can't can't really identify what the real Jesus is. You know, it's like there's all these untruths and, and, and exaggerations which are mixed up with the truth. So when you look at the Bible, who knows what is really there? Now, the first thing I want to say is, when you read the Bible to any degree, you will see that the Bible is not myth. It is not legend. It is not fable. Because when you read the Bible, the Bible is very clear to dispel to you any idea that it is an exaggeration, a legend, or a myth. In fact, the Bible wants to make very, very clear to the reader that it's, it's factual and historical. Now, I'm going to show you a few uh, passages. So, 1 John 1, which is up here, if you see up here, right? you'll notice how much the writer, John, emphasizes that what he is relating to, the, to you, to me, as the reader, is, is the truth. It's not legend. Look what he says. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this will proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testify it to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that we may also may have fellowship, you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. Now, you can't get away from the fact that, that John is trying to tell us that what he is writing to us, he has seen, he has heard, he has touched. He is an eyewitness, he is an ear witness. He is a touch witness. Right? And, 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 that, and that's a very important point for him. Why? Because the stakes are very high. Because he says here that he wants the reader to have fellowship with God. And the reader will have fellowship with God if he comes to have fellowship just like John did. So it's like, I am an eyewitness and I'm sharing with you my eyewitness experience so that you too will have a relationship with God. And you see how high the stakes are? He wants to tell us that what he has seen is real because it is life and death, isn't it? We have to have a fellowship with God. When your child is dying, when you are being persecuted, when you are suffering, he wants you to know that what is written here is real. Now, in other parts of the Bible, uh, as uh, was written to, uh, read to us by Matthias, the next slide, it says the very same thing. There's always this link between the eyewitness of the, the reader, of the writer to the reader, and the reason is because the stakes are high, because the writer wants the reader to know that you need to believe this because you need a relationship with God. So again, Luke chapter 1. Again, it says up here, isn't it? These things, right, many have to undertaken to draw up an account of things that have been fulfilled among us. This is not something that happened far away, but it happened among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And what is the reason? Why does he want Theophilus to know the truth of the Bible? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. See? The stakes are high. So, the stakes are high. Truth is very important. They don't need legend, right? So, the next slide again. Okay, I just have a few slides. We'll go through it quickly here. Okay, here in um, 2 Peter, it says the same thing, isn't it? It says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So I always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I'll soon put it aside as the Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We do not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. See the link again? That they were eyewitnesses, and they need to remember these things, they need to be reminded, because by doing so, they will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. Okay, last one, John chapter 20. Same thing, isn't it? The purpose of John writing, in the book of John, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So what we see here is that the Bible is not legend. It is not myth. It's not what Karen Armstrong says right, in her books. That you know, it is a kernel of truth which is wrapped around by many exaggerations and lies and, 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 and hypotheses. No. Because the Bible itself, the writer says, no, this is what we witness." This is what we heard. This is what we touched. This is what we experienced. Now, if you ever get a chance to find out what legend is like, right? Uh, it's all around us, right? Legendary writing. So if you look up here, have you seen this movie recently? Okay, maybe you're not young enough to watch this movie. Huh? Only kids watch this movie. Percy Jackson and the Lightning Rod. Okay? And uh, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Rod just came out, I think, a few weeks ago. And it's all about Greek mythology, Greek myth. Right, so in the movie, right, the next slide, you have the idea of Zeus, the king of the gods, or you have Poseidon, the king of the sea, or, or the earth shaker, or you have Medusa, right, who's supposed to be this protectress, or Ares, the god of warfare. See, these are myths. And the, the, if, you, if you actually go and read mythical writing in the ancient world, you can see that it's a style of writing which is very different from the Bible. Mythical writing is like Star Wars, you know, in a place far, far away, in a time different from our own. It's very abstract. There's no geographical mooring. It's not locked into one time and place. It's a very different sort of writing. But the Bible is specific to history, specific to eyewitness. You see, in Luke chapter 3, right? Look at Luke chapter 3 here. This is not mythical writing, right? This is historical writing. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria, and Traconitus and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert. See, this is historical writing. 
There is time, place, people involved. And the Bible specifically wants you to know that this happens in history. C.S. Lewis, who is a professor of literature as well as a very famous writer, right? he says that when he, read, when he became a Christian, when he read the Bible, he realized that it's very different from a novel. It's very different from, different from myth. Right? And he says, anybody who says the Bible is legend or myth obviously has not read legendary or mythical literature. Now you have to excuse him, right? Because that's the way professors talk, right? Uh, okay, that means if you, if you think the Bible is legendary or myth, that means you haven't read legendary or mythical literature. Because legendary and mythical literature do not present themselves as history like the Bible does. Now, why is it then, why is it then that people think that the Bible is legend? Why do they come to the Bible and say, ah, you know, it's layers and layers of myths and legends and fables. Why do they say that? Well, for me, when I was growing up, it's because when we read things in the Bible, they seem so unbelievable. Can Jesus really make the deaf hear? Seems a bit legendary, right? Can Jesus really make, see the, make the blind see? Make the, the, the lame walk? Make the dead rise again? Can He really feed 5,000 men and their families with just five pieces of bread and two fish? Can He walk on water? See, when we read these sort of things, we think, this stuff is like legend, isn't it? So that's why if you say, okay, the Bible is not legend, the Bible is not legendary, it's not mythical, we agree to that, it is actually historical, then the second problem, as you can see in the outline there, is that then some people say, well, maybe they weren't very good historians. Maybe, you know, it's like you recorded history, but you got a bit too enthusiastic, you know what I mean? You got too carried out by the whole thing, and, and, and you started recording all these things because you, you just got so fired up by... Uh, you know, recording Jesus' life, that, you know, your memory just got a bit mixed up and muddled up. Right? Because, can Jesus really do these things? It sounds legendary, doesn't it? Now, I would like to say that the Bible is actually a very accurate record of history. Particularly the New Testament, right? This, which, which is what we're looking at here, the, the life of Jesus. I think the Bible is a very accurate uh, record of history. And the first reason I'd like to give is, is because the Bible writers, the New Testament writers, did not write in isolation. They wrote to a community of eyewitnesses. Now, let me explain what I mean, community of eyewitnesses. You see, it's not as if, um, uh, you know, some of us went to Israel recently, right? It's not as if someone flew to Israel, saw a miracle, and then came back to Singapore and told all of us at church that they saw a miracle, right? And there's no way we can verify whether that miracle really happened. But when you look at the Bible, the Bible is about people writing to a community of eyewitnesses who were there at that time. You see, if you look at this slide up here, look at this slide. Thanks, Ellen. Uh, you'll see that the miracles and the ministry of Jesus really are concentrated in just two geographical areas, right? around the Sea of Galilee and around Jerusalem. Uh, that's, just, that's just the way it is. Isn't it? And Jesus doesn't do his miracles and his ministry in, in a very isolated area. right? But he does it in very urban, concentrated areas where there's lots of people. So it's a bit like um, ourselves in today, modern day Singapore. Right? 
Jesus doesn't do a miracle and his ministry in Pulau Ubin. Right? He's doing it in Orchard Road and Topayo and Raffles Place. That's where, that's where his ministry is taking place. There are lots of eyewitnesses, lots of people, lots of uh, corroboration, right? And that's why when the Bible writers wrote down their historical account, the community that they were writing to would be able to say, hey, you know, they would be able to question them and say, well, you know, Mark, when, when you wrote that, that, that part about Jesus feeding the 5,000, you know, it, it didn't really happen like that. I was there, right? Actually, Jesus didn't feed the 5,000. I just, we, we all shared our lunch, right? Uh, you, just, you just got it all wrong. Or, you know, if Jesus was walking water, no, actually, he wasn't walking water. He was just pretending to, to walk on the surf because I was there as well, right? You see, these people who lived in that time around those regions were, were the force of, of people who would be able to correct uh, the people who had the wrong ideas historically about Jesus. Now, in the ancient world, obviously we're not aware of it because it's not in our Bibles, there were many, many people that wrote about Jesus. There were other accounts about Jesus. But they're not in our Bible today. Why is that? Why are these accounts not in the Bible today? Because the community of eyewitnesses said, no, that's not true. That's not what we, we know of Jesus. So there's a very famous story of Jesus, of how when he was a child, uh, just a young boy or whatever, and he was playing in the mud, as young people are to do then, you know, they didn't have the Xbox then or whatever. And, uh, and, and so he was playing in the mud, and he made a bird, and he blew onto the bird, the mud bird. And the mud bird became alive and it flew off. Now, why is it we don't know this story? Why is it it's not in our Bibles? Because it is not real. And the community of eyewitnesses would say this story, along with many other stories in that particular account, gospel account, were fabrications. They were not real. See, for us to actually think about the Bible is like, us recording World War II history. Now, imagine, uh, this is Singapore, right? As we all know, uh, you should know, the Japanese in 1942, I think, right? Or was it one? I can't remember. One. Attacked from the north, okay, into Singapore. And then Singapore fell very quickly, right? Even though they were, uh, the Japanese were outnumbered, I think, by, by huge margin. And then after the Japanese came to power, they took the Allied soldiers and they interned them in Changi. Now imagine if I wrote an account which said actually the Japanese didn't attack by the north. They attacked by the south. And what if I said that you know, Singapore didn't fall quickly but you know, there was a huge siege like Stalingrad maybe for years. And then the Japanese when they actually attacked the, and won, they took the Allied soldiers and instead of putting them in Changi, they put them in woodlands instead. Now, what would happen if I published my book about that? Well, no one would believe it, right? Because the community of eyewitnesses, which still exists today, would say, no, that's not true. Right? I mean, the Japanese, I lived through the war, they, you know, they, they came from the north, and you know, they fell very quickly, and the Allied soldiers were put in Changi. Well, that's the same thing that would have happened to the Bible accounts. Okay, because they were writing to a community of eyewitnesses, not to strangers, right? They're not writing to Sweden, they're not writing to Russia, they're not writing to Asia, they're writing first and foremost to the people of Israel and also slightly further afield. 
Now the second point is, also, uh, so the first point is community of eyewitnesses. Gives us confidence in the Bible. The second thing also is that the time of the Bible writing was a time of hostility to Christians. For the first 200 years of the early church at least, uh, there was tremendous opposition and persecution of the church. Now if you look up here, Mark chapter 3, this is a list of uh, the first uh, disciples or the 12 apostles. Okay? So there's Simon, James, son of Zebedee and his brother John. Of Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, jo- James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, son of Simon the, Zel- the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now, more than half of the twelve apostles were martyred, according to church history, uh, quite reliably, right? So the people writing within uh, the first hundred years would say, this is what happened to the apostles. So you can see up here, right? Uh, Simon, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, they were all crucified. James was beheaded. Matthew, Thomas, they were all killed. Now, if that is the environment of the early church, then if they were not writing history, if what they were writing were just lies and fabrication, fabrication and concoctions, the church would have fallen apart. Because you do not die for a lie. You will be willing to die for what you saw as a truth, especially if you saw Jesus rise from the dead, but you will not be willing to die for a lie. You see, imagine here, let's say as a church, we come together and we say, okay guys, we're going to make up this story, okay? We're going to make up this story that uh, someone we knew rose from the dead. And we say, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll go to the Straits Times and we'll tell everybody about it. But then when the police start interviewing you and say, you know, is that really true? If it's not true, we're going to charge you in court and then maybe you end up in jail and, uh, you know, we'll confiscate your property and everything else. I'm sure we will start saying, oh no, you know, we, of course we made it up, right? I mean, who would believe that? It's just a ridiculous story, right? Someone rising from the dead. But if it really happened, and it, your life depended on it, and you believed in it because it was real as an eyewitness, then you'd be willing to stand by it. And I think that that, that environment of hostility to the early church also gives us confidence that we can rely on the Bible. Now the third thing I want to say also is why should we rely on the Bible? And this comes back again to the community of, uh, of eyewitnesses, right? Now, if you see up here, the next slide, in the Bible itself, it says that when the Bible was written, people were still alive who saw what happened to Jesus. Right? So it says here in verse chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. And this is very important for our... Most of the time, we just skip this part, right? Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles, and last of all, to me also, one who was normally born. Now, isn't that amazing? Because that means that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, the majority of the people who saw Jesus rise from the dead were still alive. Right? So that means when, when, when the writing of the Bible was put together, people would still have fresh in their mind what happened 
and would be able to say, yes, yes, I agree with Paul. This really happened. I saw Jesus rise from the dead. Now, if you look at the, uh, the, the next slide, you'll see that we can actually date the, the dating of the letters of Paul very closely. And it's very important because the closer you are to the date of Jesus' life, uh, in his lifetime, the more reliable it will be. Isn't it? I mean, it's a reality that here we are in Singapore 2010. We have a more accurate knowledge of World War II than we do of World War I. I think we we'll agree with that, isn't it? Because more people are alive who have been through World War II. And just as we would have more accurate knowledge of World War I than we had of the, I don't know, Napoleonic Wars or whatever, same thing, isn't it? So the closer the eyewitness accounts are, the, the more confidence we can have in the Bible. Now we know that Paul ministered from between 50 AD to about 68 AD latest. And why we know that is because we have the account of the life of Paul, isn't it? In the book of Acts, it says that uh, when Paul left Athens, he met up with Cla- uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And we know from many historical sources that this happened in 59 AD where Claudius ordered all the Jews to get out of Rome. Okay? So that means we know that Paul started his ministry around here, 50 AD. But he ended his ministry around 63 to 68 AD because that was when he went to Rome to be tried and, and, and from church history executed under um, Nero. And Nero died in 68 AD. So the latest that Paul could have been killed, 68 AD. Now this is very important because if you look at this slide, look at how close it is to the life of Jesus. 17 years difference. That's a very short time, you know. It's like writing in 1960 about World War II. Well, actually 1957 about World War II. Right? That's right, that's right. Yep, 1957 about World War II. And, and you can imagine, but at 1957, most people will still remember World War II. I, I mean... My grandfather, my father remembers World War II and, and it's 2010. Imagine in 1957-1960 how fresh the memory of World War II would be in their minds. And that's why on the next slide, oh, next slide, okay, this is uh, the last part. This is 60 AD when he's tried before Festus. And Festus was there in 50, uh, 90, uh, 60 AD, okay. And I want you to notice this, uh, Acts 26 as well. Because while Paul is ministering, and testifying before Festus, you notice what happens. He says there in verse 26, right? He says, um, oh sorry, verse 25. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. So in 60 AD, the king and Festus are obviously aware of what happened to Jesus. The things that happened to Jesus are not down in the corner and it's widespread enough to be known by even the king, right? What happened to this uh, carpenter who was crucified. Now, next slide. Now, these are the, this is the writing of Paul. Estimated date, definitely confirmed between 50 to 68 A.D., but well, this is the time frame of the non-Pauline books, right? From about 30, could be anywhere from 33 AD to 95 AD. Now this shows that when we see the Bible, it is actually written in the, in the 
in the time where people still had an experience of Jesus. And if they wrote untruth or lies or fabrication, we would not be looking at the Bible today. And we know that the community of eyewitnesses then did discard books which were not part of what they felt were true. Okay? Now, there's another way of looking at it as well, and that's by looking at the witness, the external witnesses to the Bible. And that's where you have to take this thing out, okay? So bear with me a second. You should have this uh, piece of paper. Uh, did you get one? JC, did you get one of these papers? Um, it's at the back. Yep. Uh, do you have, Xiaoqing, do you have this in the cry room? Hey, uh, Johnson, can you bring to the cry room as well? They want some there. Okay, what you're looking at here, alright, is uh, we're looking at it from a different point of view now. So we're not looking so much at when the Bible was written, the New Testament, things like that, but we're looking at it from the witness point of view. Can we look at the document itself and verify from external sources how historical it is, okay? So the first page we should be looking at is page 30 and 31. Are you looking at that page 30 and 31 right at the front? Page 30 and 31. And you'll see there at the bottom of page 30, summary of non-Christian evidence. You see that? Everybody see that? Mark, you got that? Mark, page 30 up, summary of non-Christian evidence. Okay, now you see there that actually non-Christian sources will actually back up a lot of what the Bible is saying. Okay, so you look at that page there, page 30. That Jesus Christ was executed under the peer of Tiberius and Pontius Pilate. Uh, that the movement spread from Judea to Rome, that Jesus claimed to be God and that he would depart and return, that his followers worshipped him as a God, that he was called the Christ, that his followers were called Christians, that they were numerous in Bithynia and Rome, it was a worldwide movement, his brother was James. Okay? Now, while this evidence is not extensive, it is noteworthy that it does not in any way conflict with, but rather confirms the historical information of the New Testament. So, what it says here is that the Bible, using external sources, does not conflict with what the Bible says. And that's very important, right? Because that means the points that we know of history actually all tie in with what the Bible is saying. So if we can trust the Bible on these things, then it lends weight that we should trust it on the other things. But there's more. Okay, so turn over the page. Turn over the page. Um, you'll see it in, uh, how do you call this? Not landscape. Huh? Portrait, portrait, right? If you look at portrait, you'll see that there's a whole list of historical intersections where it's very important because the Bible will say that things happen, but these are like throwaway lines, right? That this is happening at the time. But when you look at history, you'll see that historically, these things are confirmed by external sources, external historical sources. And they don't have to do they're not dealing with the life of Jesus, right? So, okay, 6 BC, King Herod killing the boys. Okay, Matthew chapter uh, 2 confirms this. And again, there's, a, there's this guy called Macrobius who also confirms that the same thing happened. Okay, Matthew chapter 2, the Ar- Achilleus was the ruler of Judea. And again, Josephus confirms this. So, there's about three pages there of historical things which are not related to Jesus, but just facts within the Bible which... Actually, I'm not that important, right? When you read the Bible, you think, who, who, who cares who Archelaus is, right? But then when you actually read it, you realize, hey, this is his history, you know? And if the Bible writer bothers to record this history and it confirms with external sources, it shows that they are accurate historians, that they are not 
amateurs. They are professional historians in a way. They, they, they take into account what's really happening. Now, not only is there an external witness from external historical sources, but there is an internal witness. An internal witness. And this is like a lawyer, okay? Imagine yourself, you're a lawyer, and you go into a courtroom and you're cross-examining the witness. And as you cross-examine the witness, you will see whether the witness is telling the truth, right? So you read the newspaper and sometimes the judge says that, oh, this witness is unreliable. This witness is very loose with the truth. Or you say this witness has a lot of weight because he seems to be telling the truth. So what I've got for you now, in the next page, if you see, is the Gospel of Mark, feeding of the 5,000. See that? Gospel of Mark, feeding of the 5,000. Have you got that? Okay, it's uh, in landscape. Gospel of Mark, feeding of 5,000. Now for me, this is really fascinating. Maybe I'm a, I should have been a lawyer, right? That's why I married a lawyer. Okay? Now if you look at this, right? You'll see that in every gospel, there is the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, 5,000 men and their families. But when you put each of the stories beside each other, you'll see that each story has a unique perspective on what happens. Uh, I've... Uh, I tried this before and I said I asked the audience to try to find out the differences themselves, right? But it took too long, so I just did it for you. Okay? So if you look at it, I've highlighted and bold all the individual observations of the witness eyewitness, which is different from the other three. So every time you see a highlight and a bold, this fact does not appear, appear in any of the other eyewitness the other three eyewitnesses. So so give you give you an uh, example. Uh, the Gospel of John says that Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea uh, of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And he did, the other authors don't actually record that, right? The other eyewitnesses don't record that. The uh, Gospel of Luke says that they went to a town called Bethsaida, but the other three uh, people also don't record that. John gives you a lot of details about the people's names, right? Jesus says to Philip, and Philip answered him, whereas... In Mark, Matthew, Luke, they don't tell you who's actually talking, right? It's just says the disciples. And again, John says, it's Simon brothers, Simon Peter's brother spoke up and there was a boy with the five loaves and the two fish. Okay, and it's, it goes on again to the next page, over the page, and it, they notice that in John, it talks that there's plenty of grass, but then Mark talks about green grass. Now, all these facts, you may think, are totally irrelevant, right? You might think, oh, well, what's Andrew going on about this for? This green grass, John, Andrew, Bethsaida, Sea of Tiberias. But you see, this is the colour that lends itself to eyewitness testimony. Because when people come together and they tell exactly the same story and there's no difference in perspective, that is when there is corroboration. See, that's when we all come together and let's say we... Okay, I've experienced this before, right? Let's say you're in a car accident and everybody says, okay guys, let's get our story straight. Right? This is what happened, right? Ever been in that situation before? I have, right? And you say, no, 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 you, you know, this is, the way, this is the way it happened, right? Okay, the other car did this. And then you go and you, you, know, you tell the police, yeah, this is exactly what happened. All the facts are exactly the same because you all got together and people are corroborating and says, this is the way it happened. But that's wrong, isn't it? Because that's not eyewitness testimony at all. That's, that's coming together and colluding. You see, in, in reality, when you experience something, and somebody else experiences something too, you will experience it in different ways. 
So imagine, okay, uh, I was thinking, what, what, what thing has happened to me recently with my whole family that all of us can remember, but we will remember in a different way. And I think that the most uh, tra- traumatic thing that has happened to me recently is uh, going on a roller coaster ride, okay, with my wife in, uh, in America. So my, my whole family went on a roller coaster ride, okay. So that's the reality, that's history. We were all on a roller coaster ride. But if you ask me what happened, I'll say, whoa, it was really dark and like, you know, it was going up and down, it was terrifying, right? But then if you ask my children what happened, they'll say, oh, it was great, you know? We were going and then there was, this, there was this mountain goat there and then we went down, you know, then you could see this, you could see that. But you see, the, 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 the roller coaster ride happened, but our perspective is different, isn't it? We are noticing different things. Right? I'm noticing how terrifying it is, isn't it? And they're noticing how great the scenery is. And I'm sure that if all of us went to Universal Studio and we took that uh, cyclone right, right, which goes upside down and everything, a triple corkscrew, right? I'm sure we will, we, we will all experience it, but we all experience it differently. And that's the same thing with the Bible. See, the Bible, the Bible actually shows what happened with these people, with Jesus. But their perspective actually shows they were eyewitnesses. Now, just to quote one uh, professor, Professor Craig Bloomberg, he's a very renowned professor, he says, because of when they wrote, that means the time of when they wrote, they were able to write accurate history because of the community and the time. Because they intended to write accurate history, that means because of the intention, they wanted people to know the truth, right? At every point which we are able to test what they wrote is proven to be true. So when we test the Bible externally, it is proven to be true. But the last point is what I want to bring to your attention. He says, if someone wants to deny the historicity of the New Testament, the burden of truth is actually with them. That's a very interesting point, isn't it? Because so often the world says that the Christian has the burden of truth to, to prove to the world that the Bible is true. But actually when you come to the Bible and you look at all the facts, you realize that it's harder to disprove the historicity of the New Testament than it is to, to, to prove it. Because there's so much proof that the New Testament is history. Okay, now, if you look at your outline, there's the first two questions, right? The Bible is not legend. The early Christian writers were reliable historians. But the third question that many people ask, which I ask as well, is, okay, maybe Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they were really good, excellent writers. Maybe Paul was a really good writer. Accurate Reliable, truthful, but, but is the Bible that we hold today accurate? Maybe, maybe, someone has come in and changed the Bible for me. And because of changing the Bible for me, I can't rely on the Bible anymore. Now, that is the fallacy of, uh, of the next one, the next slide, of the Da Vinci Code. Because that's what the Da Vinci Code is actually saying, if you read Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code basically says, that, uh, you know, there was this person called Jesus and, you know, we have accurate records. But then, the church or Constantine or somebody much later came in around 300 AD and doctored all the records, changed all the records so that what we have today is something which is not what Matthew wrote, not what Luke wrote. It's, it's just been changed. It's just been doctored. Now, I want to say that that's not really possible, right? Uh, that, that the Bible has been doctored. We've seen that the early writings are reliable. Okay, but the question is, is what we have today in 2010, is that reliable? Now this slide is very important, I will keep referring back to it. And I have to explain to you for a while, so you need to pay attention, right? 
Now this is the New Testament. Can you see up here the New Testament? And we don't have any original of the, whole test, uh, the New Testament. Okay, so we don't actually have the original writing of what Luke wrote, or Mark wrote, or John wrote, or Paul wrote. Okay? But we have many, many copies, 24,000 copies of the New Testament. And the earliest dates of these uh, copies that we have are between 40 to 90 years of when the, 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 the letter was written. So if, if Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, say, 55 AD, then the earliest copy that we have would be 95 AD. Okay? Now, first thing I want, to note, you want you to notice is, compared to the other manuscripts in history, we have 24,000 copies and Homer has 600, not Homer Simpson, right? But Homer, the uh, ancient historical writer, has only 643 copies. In fact, Plato only has seven copies. And these copies are like 1,200 years later, 500 years later. So that means that in terms of uh, historical confidence in the Bible, we have a lot more documents which are a lot closer to the date than any other Asian document. And actually, the 24,000 copies is a wonderful thing because it gives us a lot of confidence in the Bible. You see, let's uh, do this experiment. Okay, I was trying to think in my mind how, how, how best to explain it to you. Let's say uh, I write a story, a manuscript. And every one of you here today copies it with great care and attention my story, not, not photocopy, but hand copy it. Then you take this copy, you bring it home tonight or tomorrow, and then you get your family members and their friends to carefully hand copy this document. And this process goes on until you get 24,000 copies, alright? Now when we collect these 24,000 copies, we will be able, with fairly good confidence, to know what the original will be. Because some of you may be more careless, I won't mention who, right? And uh, you will make mistakes. Some of you will be very good and you'll make no mistakes, or maybe one or two. But when you bring your copy home and your family members and their friends copy it, that mistake will keep being replicated over and over again till, till we get the 24,000 copies, right? But it is unlikely that everyone here makes that same mistake. Maybe one or two people might make the same mistake, but the rest of us will not make that mistake. So by coming back together, all these copies, we are able to see, okay, maybe there's one family group which always has the same mistake. Some geographic area where all the people who are copying that, copied that document with that mistake, but the rest don't have that mistake. And with all these documents, we are actually able to confirm fairly strongly up to 98% of the Bible. 98% of the Bible has no error at all. It's confirmed by almost all the copies. Now the 2%, uh, there, are, there are mistakes that we, that we notice. But most of the mistakes are just spelling or punctuation. So let me give you an example. Okay, this is my Greek Bible. Next slide. Okay, this is the first chapter of Matthew. First book of the Bible. First couple of verses, right? And in verse 8 here, if you can't see, you need to stand sit a bit closer next time. But this is verse 8, right? Okay? In verse 8, there is a question, uh, if you look here in verse 8 of my Bible, it says, Asa, oh sorry, in verse 7 says, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, 
Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, right? So, verse 7 and 8 here says that there's a, there's a problem because some manuscripts spell Asa as A-S-A-P-H and some spell it as A-S-A. Now, I don't think that really, that's not really important to us, right? Because actually in the Bible, whether you spell it A-S-A or A-S-P-H, I don't think you're going to lose any sleep about that, are you? No, right? I mean, probably someone copied it and they forgot to put one letter and that's it. Uh, because in the Greek, PH is one word, right? So, someone's copying it and they were so tired, you know, because the genealogy is hard enough to read, right? It's like, Solomon, Rehoboam, Asaph, Abijah. After a while, you're like, copy, copy. It's like, ah, I forgot one P, right? Right, so, it's like, is that really important? No, isn't it? In fact, in the Bible, there is no fundamental doctrine of Christian faith uh, which rests on a disputed reading. That means that in the Bible itself, there is no textual problem that we have that actually affects a Christian doctrine. The divinity of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, uh, some salvation issue, some doctrinal issue. Right? Most of the mistakes are just punctuation, missing word, uh, uh, missing a spelling error. And you can imagine that happening, isn't it? Because here am I, I'm a scribe, I'm very tired, I've got only candlelight, I miss a word, I miss a letter. So actually the reality is uh, the Bible as we have it today, as you have it today, first of all is 98%. The New Testament is undisputed. And the 2%, most of it is just spelling errors and there's no doctrinal difference. So to, for people to say, oh, you know, this Constantine or the early church came and changed everything, that's not true. There's no truth in it all. Historical uh, um, Scholars will say that, that that cannot be possible because you have 24,000 records and they're spread all over the world. It's like you, imagine you send out an email to 20 of your friends who then send out 20, you know, is it a silly email, send it out to 20 of your friends, right? Send out 20, you get good luck or whatever, I don't know, right? So you keep sending out this 20 until you send it out to 24,000 people. Are you able to get all those emails back and change it? No, you can't. It's gone. Where it goes to, you don't even know. See, so the Bible, you can't say, oh, you know, you don't believe in it because it's been changed by Constantine or something. Now, the last point, I'll try to speak through it because I don't want to take so long. Someone specifically asked me about this last week, so um, I thought that I'll address it. We talked about the New Testament, and I think we have a lot of confidence in the New Testament, but what about the Old Testament? What about the Old Testament? Now, the reality is that we don't know as much about the Old Testament. In fact, we know very little about the Old Testament. We don't know where it was put together. We don't know who many of the writers were. Right? We, we, basically, our earliest documents, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, are still many, many uh, centuries from when the original was written, probably. So how can we have confidence in the Old Testament? Well, I think that we can have confidence in the Old Testament if we have confidence in the New. If we have confidence in the New, and, and we trust that what it says is correct, then we... We believe that Jesus is God, isn't it? We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe that He has perfect knowledge. He doesn't make mistakes. And Jesus, He, as God, as the author of the Bible, tells us that the Old Testament in His time is correct. So look at what it says here in Matthew chapter 5. Right? Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter 
not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So if we believe in the New Testament, we believe in the, in the person of Jesus and his identity, then we can believe in what he says about the Old Testament. And he says the Old Testament is, is correct, isn't it? Not even a single letter, the smallest stroke of a pen, which is like, um, in Hebrew writing, it's like the, the apostrophe mark on a, on a wound, right, will disappear. And he says there in verse, uh, Luke chapter 24, he said, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets uh, have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So, he doesn't dispute the scriptures, but he recognizes the scriptures. Because the scriptures in Jesus' day was the Old Testament. Now, there's another reason why uh, I feel that we, we shouldn't discount the Old Testament. Now, the main problem that people have with the Old Testament is what? It is the Exodus, isn't it? People say, no, can you really believe in the plagues that God brought in Egypt? Can you really believe that God parted the Red Sea and led the Israelites through the cloud of fire and, 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 and you know, a cloud at the end of the day? Can you really believe that Jesus fed the Israelites in the desert and they were wandering around there for 40 years? I mean, really, can you really believe that? Well, the Bible actually says that it is important, the Exodus, because the Exodus event provides the foundation for Israel. It's like their national day, you know? August the 9th is Singaporean national day, but the Exodus event is commemorates the national day of Israel. And actually many things in Old, Old Testament come from the Exodus event. You know, the Ten Commandments come after the Exodus event, uh, when they leave Egypt. The temple worship and structure, the festivals they celebrate, it is the way that God reveals himself to his people, Israelites. So unless what happened was really true, you're saying that the whole Israelite community was brainwashed and hypnotized. See, look up here on this slide. It says there, many times in Deuteronomy, it says that these things happened before your very eyes. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 5. All of us who are alive today, right? Uh, ha- uh, ha- you know, they saw God face to face out of the fire. On oh, the next slide, right? Again, before your very eyes, God sent miraculous signs and wonders. Uh, again, Deuteronomy chapter seven. Uh, how will you know that God is powerful? Because you must remember, you saw your very eyes what happened when God brought you out of the Exodus. Uh, next one. Okay, now imagine, imagine, okay, uh, is this real? Is this a real animal? No, right? Because oh, it's not real, I've never seen one myself. Okay, but I don't believe they're real. Now imagine if I created this story, okay, August 9th, 1965. Do you know how Singapore got its independence? The merlion parted the causeway and led the Singaporeans across from Johor. Right, that's that's how Singapore was uh, founded. Okay, now who would believe that? That's not real, right? It's just it's just a story. It's a myth. And then, okay, every August night you must remember the mer lion because it's the mer lion that brought you across. Now nobody will believe that, and nobody will celebrate that because it's patently not true, isn't it? 
I can't say before your very eyes. Don't you remember the merlion bringing you across the causeway? It doesn't work. But that is what the Bible is saying about God, isn't it? You, they, they say, he's saying, you saw God do these miraculous things. You remember God brought you to the promised land. Unless there's some national hallucination, these things really happen. And Jesus says that they happen. So, I mean, I think I'm willing to take Jesus' word on it. So, in conclusion, I just want to say that when you look at all the facts, when you actually take the time to look at the facts, the, the New Testament and the Old Testament, they are accurate, they are reliable, they are truthful history. And in many ways, why people have problems with the Bible is because of the claims of Jesus. The claims of Jesus that He is God, that He is the Creator, that He is the Sustainer, that we must kneel before Him, bow before Him, trust on Him as a Saviour. But not only that, we also have problems because we can't believe that Jesus can do all these fantastic things. But my point is that when you actually do the work of studying the Bible, you realise that the burden of truth is on you to disprove that the Bible is true. Because there are so many things about the Bible which testify to it being true. In conclusion, I want to um, share with you uh, this book that I bought many, many years ago. There was a documentary called Testament by the BBC many years ago. And as you know, the BBC is not a supporter of Christianity. And uh, this archaeologist also not a, not a, um, not a uh, supporter of Christianity. But, but he says, This man Jesus lived, of that there can be little doubt. Consider the life of Alexander the Great. As with Jesus, there are a number of legendary biographies about his career written after he died, uh, eugilistic accounts of a departed demigod, but we are convinced that he lived. His effect on the world is so tremendous. Hellenistic towns and temples that he founded are scattered from Egypt to India. The kingdoms of his generals changed the ancient world forever. It is by the effect of the man, ultimately, that you may say that Alexander lived. According to such widely accepted standards, of historical probability, Jesus too must have once lived. Unlike Alexander, of course, Jesus was a humble man. There are no coins with his face upon them, no contemporary inscriptions telling of his passing, and neither do we expect there to be any. No names of any of the villages of Capernaum were to be found in the excavation uh, there. Such humble people rarely leave records of their passing. It's unreasonable to find such contemporary records of Jesus or Peter in such a place. Yet from a village by this lake, and from the words of the Gospels came such an energy, such an effect, that unless the whole, confidence move, whole movement was a confidence strict of such unparalleled dimensions, it is more reasonable to assume that the man Jesus really lived during the time of Roman governance. And it's true, isn't it? Because isn't it remarkable that today, 2,000 years ago, we'll be talking about a, a, a man who lived in... Uh, in Israel, in Galilee, who only lived 30, 33 years, who never conquered any nations, who was not particularly rich, who was not a, you know, influential in a business or political sense. Why should we be doing it? Because what he did, which is recorded for us in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament is true, isn't it? See, Alexander the Great, we can, we can remember why, because he had the greatest kingdom ever. He conquered India, from China all the way to Europe. How can we not remember this man? We have coins, we have everything. But Jesus, 
Right? Jesus, why should we remember him? He was not a general. He was not a politician. He was not a businessman. It is because the things that are recorded for us in the Bible are true, isn't it? And they're historical and they're real. So I hope that uh, from this talk, you will come back to the Bible with a renewed confidence and you will truly come to respect what the Bible says. Because it is. It is true and it's real. And it does record for us what God says to us. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we want to thank you for you are not a God who has left us without a word, but instead you've given us your word, the scriptures. The Old Testament and New Testament. Help us to see that within the Bible and outside the Bible, if we are willing to apply our minds to it, we can see that the burden of proof actually lies with those who say the Bible is not right. That in so many ways the Bible has shown itself to be historical, to be true and reliable. When we read your word, dear Father, when the times are difficult, when we may disagree with what it says, help us to remember that truly it is real and true, that it is your word to us, and that we should not use a superior attitude when we come to it, but we should be humble before it and contrite before it, and to let it speak to us and to change us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.